This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. Professor, we had a Fed meeting this week, continued political discussions. Uh, how are you looking at the markets? <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, so let's. Um, uh, the market, you know, after the blow off. You know, when the craziness hit Tesla and all these others, it's processing. Um, uh, I, I do think there there's two things that are uh, it's it's trading near the low of its range right now mid uh, mid Friday. Uh, kind of a couple couple disappointments. Uh, um, not not so much in the data, but uh, first of all. Uh, in the Fed meeting, and, and uh, there was a big loss during the uh, the news conference. Um, no extra QE, no strong words by uh, Powell to uh, plead with Congress, please reinstate the, you know the PPP program and uh, and and some of the stimulus. As we know, there's a standoff there. Um, he I mean he did express support, but there you know there wasn't uh, as much as was hoped to be, and I think that somewhat uh, discouraged um, uh, the market. Uh, I was surprised on two dissents, but um, uh, uh, one. First of all, let me mention that I, I had a laugh when I read the guidance. Uh, we will not tighten until inflation reaches 2% and is poised to moderately exceed that level. Let's be realistic. The Fed has no ability to fine-tune inflation to that extent. It can't even get it up to 2%, nonetheless, to keep it. So it will not exceed two and a quarter, two and a half. Remember, it is my position that they're going to let it go way beyond it. And political pressures are, oh, we can't tighten yet because unemployment is still going to be 5 6 7%. And, um, and there's special factors that are causing the rise and it can be explained away. And, you know, this idea that we're going to start tightening at two and a quarter or two and a half, I think, is, is silly. But, uh, you know, and, and Cash Carey just came out an hour ago saying, you know, I mean, you know, I think we should let it go sustained above 2% and all that. Again, um, the factors are, are going to conspire that they find they don't have anywhere near that fine-tuning control uh, that they do, and they'll just let it go up. Um, and uh, it's, uh, I, think that's, I think that's what's going on. Um, uh, we, we should... Talk a little bit about the IPO market. Uh, Snowflake, uh, you know, coming out at double uh, the IPO price, which itself was raised forty or fifty percent from the indications of a week earlier. We're talking about uh, you know tens of billions. This is not a small IPO. Wow. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I know that there are certain market participants that that think this is going to suck the air out of the tech stocks, and you know, people are you know going to be fleeing the other stocks, and this could be the prelude to a, a bad market. Um, uh, I don't think so. I don't think Snowflake really deserves that the price that it got, but uh, it's already below that price. We ju- we just had, by the way, a pricing of. Um, of Unity Software, 
uh, it came out of 52 and first traded 75. Um, and, and people say, yeah, this is remnants of 1999. The thing is, of course, in 1999, companies that were not, did not have any revenues, uh, that were coming out at two, three, four hundred percent of their IPO prices, uh, in a very different world than, than what we have. Uh, today, at the end of a 10-year economic expansion, not at the beginning, and with interest rates, uh, you know, multiple, multiple times higher than what we had to do today. I mean, again, very, very different. But nonetheless, uh, it, it, it's interesting that the sell-off in, in some of the techs, yet it's still there's this money that is coming into IPO on a, on a trading basis. Um, you know, as I, I said in stocks for the long run, um, uh, if you can buy at IPO price, uh, get it. If you have to buy at the first price after the IPO, forget it. <laughs> uh, and uh, certainly, actually, that looks like uh, a good good advice uh, going uh, going forward. On the um, on political front, uh, Biden is holding for pretty firm. Um, uh, the the latest. Uh, Actually, polls are slightly strengthening for him. Uh, he's back to 59 versus 44 on the betting markets um, for the Republicans, and a Democratic sweep, which includes control of the Senate, is 55 percent, so just over uh, one half of, um, uh, of of a percent there. Um, uh, several sites have commented that. Biden is a couple percent ahead of where, if you take a look at how Hillary was ahead in the swing states. Now, she lost, but just by a bare fraction of one percent, that Biden is a couple percentage points higher than Hillary was at the time. So if, if, if in fact, polls off are, are off by the same amount, she would win in those states. Interesting also enough that that, um, Pennsylvania has now become closer in the betting markets than Wisconsin. Um, still favored to go with Biden, but um, uh, and uh, again, uh, Trump must take, in my opinion, and I think a, a opinion of the experts, he must take one of the three states: Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Remember, he took all three of those states uh, four years ago, but he must take one of them. Um, to win in November. Uh, he's not favored in I- any of them, but uh, again, uh, you know, we still have quite a, quite a long time uh, uh, looking forward. Uh, just to follow up on your comment quickly on Snowflake, we actually have one of the Salesforce venture uh, leaders next week. They've been a big, they actually were, along with Berkshire Hathaway, one of the big investors in Snowflake's uh, IPO here. We're going to be talking to them on the program next week. So oh, wonderful. We're looking forward to that conversation. Uh, I just want to yeah, remind our uh, listeners, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to, I'm going to follow up on that. I mean, listen, Warren Buffett taking a position on Snowflake, uh, I, I think is a boost. I mean, you know, given his general aversion to IPOs and technology, I mean, that, that sort of said, my God, if Buffett is taking a position there, it's got to be good. It doesn't mean it's worth double. Uh, I mean, yeah. Buffett has already doubled his but, uh, you know, obviously people who bought at the first price have not. Yeah, yeah it'll be interesting next week. Continue. So I want to let, let our listeners know there's a new feature. You can email uh, Ask Siegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, every week with questions you want uh, the professor to answer. we got a number of questions, professor, to address this week. Some of them we've addressed a little bit, but, uh, you know, maybe good to, to keep rehashing some of these. One of them is on the deficit, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the reader or listener wrote in, the federal deficit is going to an all-time high. Uh, will it ever be paid down? How will it be paid down? from tax increases, finding gold in Ohio, or fracking in New Jersey? Uh, How is the deficit going to be paid? paid? By inflation. Believe it or not, um, uh, don't forget, 90% of our debt is nominal dollar-denominated debt. Uh, uh, Less than 10% is indexed to inflation. So inflation lowers the value of debt over time. Um, And and that is one of the ways that uh, debt gets paid down is inflation not a pretty way for the bondholder but um that's uh that is what history has shown us for countries that have had excessive uh, debt ratios i'm not saying we're at excessive debt ratios right now again my inflation is 
forecast is not just based on the debt, because we see some countries, you know, like Japan, have much higher debt ratios with deflation. But the fact that so much of the debt that was created uh, during the uh, COVID crisis flowed right into the money supplies in this economy, which I think is going to spur spending and inflation. Now, maybe related to that on sort of inflation fears, people ask, do you have concerns of longer-term dollar weakness? Any, any thoughts on what's been going on in the currencies, and, and is that a fear? Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, obviously uh, if we, because we push more money in than any other country, I would expect our weakness. Now, remember, I'm, I'm expecting moderate inflation. Not hyperinflation, or or even not even high single-digit inflation. Remember, back in the '70s, we got the double-digit inflation. So, so and I'm talking about inflation three, four, five percent for a few years. That will depress the currency, and I think, in fact, the the fall of the dollar, which has been five to ten percent since the beginning of COVID, is partly a reflection of that. Those. Those concerns could it, it, I, I think there could be down, further downward pressure on the dollar over the next year or two, but uh, n- no collapse of the dollar on the markets that you know precipitates any sort of you know panic or, or, or need for special uh, you know um, central bank uh, actions. Now we've been talking a lot about the the election on the show and and you know. Somebody asked in about the odds of the Democrats winning the presidency and the Senate and how you think the market responds to that Democrat wave. Well, uh, again, you know, it's an interesting thing. If, uh, and, and as I pointed out and still ho- uh, last week and, and the week before and still holds today, if every Senate race um, falls the way the betting markets are right now, it would be 50-50 in the Senate, of course, which does mean that the uh, Democratic presidency would be a deciding vote. But let us face the, the, the fact that, uh, you know, a 50-50 um, uh, gives you, I mean, uh, you know, very, no radical proposals, you know, one Dem, and don't forget, it, these, with, these are new Dems, a lot of them are going to be, you know, know that there's going to be more elections in two years. They've got to be cautious. Uh, if there's a Democratic sweep, if they get 53, 54, they could be bolder um, in, in, in their move. Uh, I should also say, and it's, it's in my statement and prediction for a long time, that, that, that the Biden tax increase, um, whatever form it finally takes, if he does, in fact, take the Senate and there is a tie in the House or, or better for the Democrats, will not be implemented next year and will not go into effect until uh, 2022 because of the fact that the, you know, the economy will not have fully recovered and unemployment uh, will, will still be high. So uh, you know that we are we are looking down the road, but that margin does make a difference. So with the fifty-fifty, there's going to be moderation, and and again, in any case, I don't think there'll be a tax increase in in twenty twenty-one. Uh, and maybe just quick thoughts. Uh, we only have about thirty seconds, but real estate, commercial real estate. How are you thinking about that? I, I think that's uh, to use the euphemism challenged. Yeah, uh, commercial real estate that represents office space. Obviously, warehouses are doing crazy and crazy well, um, you know, and um, uh, you know that 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 sector is fine. It's the office space which I think is going to be really um, depressed for many many years to to come. And uh, we're going to have to hit that more on another topic. We had a recording. We have uh, Jesper Cole, who is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree in Japan. We had a long discussion on they had a new prime minister. We had Warren Buffett coming into Japan. Uh, and uh, you're going to be listening to an interview with Jesper Cole here on Behind the Markets coming up. I'm going to welcome my guest, Jesper Cole, who's a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree in Japan. He's a frequent return guest to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Jesper, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Jerry, thank you for having me. So Japan has been a hot topic of late, Jesper. We have uh, our one of our favorite value investors, Warren Buffett, coming into Japan. I want to talk about that. But before we get there, uh, you know, you have a leadership transition. Prime Minister Abe is no longer 
going to be the prime minister. You have somebody coming in. Maybe tell us a little bit about the local politics. We have a lot of U.S. politics now, but what? tell us a little bit about the state of Japanese politics and what is happening. Uh, the state of Japanese politics is uh, actually remarkable stability. And, uh, you know, obviously Prime Minister Abe resigned, which was a bit of a surprise to everybody for health reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, the new Prime Minister, um, you know, is in place and the new cabinet uh, has been announced. And, you know, this is really consistency with a capital C, um, you know, and Japan is bound to stay a bastion of stability when it comes to the overall policy framework. Now, you know, for U.S., uh, for global investors, you know, obviously what matters the most is uh, monetary and fiscal policy. As you know, Japan under Abe pioneered almost, you know, modern monetary theory, complete coordination between monetary and fiscal policy. And that is going to continue. Remember that Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda uh, will be in his seat until 2023. The finance minister is the same as uh, under the Prime Minister Abe, um, and, uh, you know, there's no question, um, you know, that uh, the new Prime Minister, Mr. Suga, uh, is going to continue to keep the uh, pedal to the metal um, on fiscal policy. There's already, um, you know, uh, a talk of another supplementary fiscal package coming, and there's no question that the Bank of Japan is going to continue to monetize it. Yeah, I mean, I think on that modern monetary theory, I think some of the questions have been, you know, they have, you know, all the foot on the gas, uh, and then they also put their foots on the brakes a little bit, you know, with the consumption tax hikes, you know, do you think, is there any recognition that was a questionable policy? What do you think about, you know, the, that foot, foot on the gas and foot on the brakes at the same time? No, look, and, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, this, this uh, rebalancing of Japan's tax system, you know, away from an over overly reliance on direct taxation uh, towards greater reliance on indirect taxation, which is what you need as society ages, because, you know, you need to tax people at the point of consumption rather than uh, at the point of income. But the good news is that, uh, you know, there's broad spread recognition, um, you know, that, uh, you know, yes, the value, the, the hike in the value added tax, uh, you know, did push Japan into, uh, you know, domestic recession in October uh, last year already, so before the whole corona crisis. And uh, the new Prime Minister Suga, um, you know, is very clear that for the next 10 years, for the next decade, the consumption tax is not going to be going Going up. Uh, so I think that, uh, you know, the uh, uh, concerns and worries about fiscal consolidation, um, you know, and the ideologues at the Ministry of Finance, you know, uh, forcing another policy mistake by hiking taxes again, or by uh, pulling back uh, government spending too fast, um, you know, that will always be a concern anywhere in the world. But for all intents and purposes here in Japan over the next uh, 12 to 18 months, uh, I don't think that that's going to be a concern. Do remember one thing, um, there has to be a general election um, by October 2021. So the new prime minister obviously selected uh, inside the boardrooms of the LDP, of the Liberal uh, Democratic Party. Um, he will have to go and face the, uh, uh, the, uh, the people at some point over the next 12 months. And as a result of that, I think, you know, uh, uh, keeping the fiscal space get open um, is is going to be one way to ensure that there's a little bit of a feel-good factor, uh, you know, from the general public here in Japan. Now, one, one of the mentions you, you said in terms of things that keep the, the gas going, you know, is sort of the, the central bank and the monetary policy. And, you know, in terms of the experiments that we all are doing globally with, with monetary policy, you know, Japan was one that went to negative rates. Is there any sense on neg the negative rate policy? Do you think that is a thing that they view as a success? And uh, is there any way to exit negative rates? Is that anything that they would ever admit? Look, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, there are a lot of negative voices because obviously, you know, uh, you've got negative rates, which is effectively a tax. 
uh, on the banking system. And then, as you know, Japan also has yield curve control. There's an explicit target. The 10-year bond, uh, you know, will stay, you know, around zero, right? There's about, you know, 10, 15 basis point wiggle room either way. But, you know, if you're capping the long end of the yield curve, you know, that obviously means that bank profit margins on their basic core business on, on, you know, bank loan margins, you know, cannot expand. And as a result of that, you know, you've got an enormous amount of pressure of consolidation uh, for the weaker parts of the Japanese banking system. I mean, the mega banks, you know, the Mitsui Bank, uh, sorry, the, the, the Mitsubishi Bank, Sumitomo Bank, Mizuho Bank, you know, these are big, you know, stable mega banks, um, you know, got, uh, you know, non-interest uh, income, you know, beginning to boost their profits. But the regional banks, the secondary banking system is uh, making loss after loss after loss because they can't get, uh, you know, uh, uh, any margins. And as a result of that, uh, you know, the regional banking system is now beginning to consolidate uh, quite nicely. So there's a roll-up that is happening in the secondary banking system. Remember, Japan, uh, you know, has about uh, still about 105 uh, regional banks. You know, I reckon that within two years' time, that's going to be down to about 30 or 35. And is it the big guys doing the, that consolidation or is it just a consortium of the smaller banks coming together and, and trying to compete with the bigger banks? It's very interesting, Jerry, because, you know, the answer is uh, there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. For all intents and purposes, you know, it's, uh, you know, the smaller regional banks getting together, merging into bigger consolidated ent- entities. And then you've got something very interesting. Uh, you've actually got some of the investment banks, and particularly some of the, uh, you know, newly set up direct brokerage houses like SBI Securities or Rakuten Securities, um, you know, actually aiding the uh, um, consolidation process. Um, and that's where it gets interesting, uh, because obviously, you know, in the regions of Japan, you know, that's, um, you know, you're not going to have a thriving loan business because the regional economies, you know, are not, um, you know, high growth economies by any means. So reorganizing the regional banks from traditional lenders into investment advisors, for example, that's something that uh, the likes of SBI, the likes of Rakuten, uh, you know, are doing here in Japan right now. And I'm hopeful that with the change in the business model of the secondary banking system away from just traditional banking towards investment advice, um, you know, that that's going to help to unlock um, you know, some of these uh, huge amounts of deposit savings that Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe have been hoarding over the last couple of decades. Yeah, you could say they were smart hoarding the cash. Money was, you know, becoming uh, <laughs> with deflation. Uh, maybe the marks are expensive. What what could be a trigger that gets them to actually put some of that money back into things like equities? Maybe it's global equities. Uh, is there anything that's going to, anything development-wise that might trigger them to, get out of the cash and into the into other assets? Um, I think number one, you know, sort of the consolidation and, uh, you know, having uh, modern financial institutions like, uh, you know, Rakuten Securities or SBI uh, Holdings, you know, educating, uh, you know, the sales force in the regional bank, that, that's one element. I mean, changing the distribution channels um, is always something that is going to be very important. And then the second element, Jerry, is, is, is just the fact, look, you know, um, nothing succeeds like success. Um, and the fact that you do have Warren Buffett, um, you know, committing six billion dollars to the Japanese market, you know, certainly has started to open, um, you know, a lot of eyes here and people realize, wow, you know, the dividend yield, um, you know, of the Japanese market, you know, is somewhere between three and four um, percent. And, uh, you know, with the Sogo Shosha, with the general trading companies, you can actually, you know, in some cases get a dividend yield as high as six, six and a half percent. Wow. Compare that to the fact that your bank deposit doesn't earn anything. So slowly but surely, I think, you know, the, 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 the fact that there is, you know, 
such a huge amount of value that the dividend payout ratios, despite the COVID crisis, have actually continued to grow here in Japan. So corporate Japan has been using its cash, you know, to maintain or even raise the dividend. And, you know, that is starting to raise eyeballs from the investors say, whoa, you know, the banks don't give me anything, but the corporations, better corporate governance, better capital stewardship is now coming through and helping me, um, you know, with my income needs through the dividend flow. Yeah, you got to imagine all those brokerages have got to be trying to leverage uh, the Buffett story, I would I would think. Um, when you think about in terms of getting their people more into equities, when, when you think for the U.S. investors who may not know a lot about the trading companies, can you tell us a little bit about their businesses, what, what they are? Uh, and then we can talk about how he bought this basket of five to diversify the selection risk of any one of them. Um, but maybe as a whole, tell us about their businesses and, and what they're doing, what, what he might be trying to get after besides just these really cheap valuations. No, it's it's very interesting because, you know, I mean, it's, it's almost like a sogo shosha, which means general trading company. I mean, when you go and meet them, you know, you know how when you when you meet with a CEO with the IR department of the company and, and you sort of first question to warm things up is like, you know, so what businesses are you in? Uh, you know, with these general trading companies that Warren Buffett bought, you're almost better off asking what business are you not in? Um, you know, I mean, they do everything, um, you know, um, and, uh, you know, act as the intermediaries, um, you know, um, you know, here in the Japanese economy, but more importantly, act as the intermediaries between Japan and the rest of the world. Um, you know, so, for example, when when Dean and DeLuca, um, you know, which was this famous coffee brand uh, in the United States, you know, when 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 they came to Japan, it was Mitsui Busan, the Mitsui trading company that brought them here into Japan and then eventually sold it off to a local investor. But the initial in between the initial venture, the initial funding uh, and the initial introduction into the Japanese marketplace came through the general trading companies. Now, so they do a lot of things. But when you then step back and look at how the share prices trade, um, you know, they trade with global commodities inflation. And that's because you're at the core, um, you know, all these trading companies, whether it's Sumitomo, whether it's Marubeni, whether it's Itochu, you know, um, their core business is the global commodity trade. And that goes from soybeans, uh, grains, soft commodities, you know, into iron ore um, and, uh, you know, all the hard commodities. And and if you plot out, you know, the way the relative share price performance of these companies go, this sector of the general trading companies goes, you know, it goes up and down with global inflation. So the bottom line is extremely complicated companies, but the trade investment story is a very simple one. This is a basic, uh, almost a free option, um, you know, on global inflation going up. And, you know, as you know, Warren Buffett was very smart. You know, he issued some yen bonds um, to make that investment. So he's effectively fully currency hedged and he's got a yield pickup of around 6% on this, on this position. So you get a 6% currency risk-free carry and a free option on global inflation. Inflation—that's a spectacular story. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, an underappreciated point. You know, I've been one of the the leading discussion points on this currency point that you know why bother betting on the yen uh, if you're going to think the Japanese stocks are cheap. And so, you know, it, I, I've also seen a lot of those stories on the on the yen issuance um, to offset that. And so, I think that's not the standard way people. Invest maybe in some institutional circles that's still you know a, a very common way, but you know the traditional international investor is still betting on currencies, and you know I think it's a really interesting point that Ward's coming in and saying, hey, who knows what's going to happen to the end? They're doing you know to your point on their sort of at the cutting edge of monetary policies. Who knows what's going to happen to the end one day? But I don't have to bet on that. I just think these stocks are cheap. Let's not sideshow with the end. No, and this is a very important point because look, I mean you know. Talking about currency is a lot of fun, right? I mean, if you're, you know, in my in my former life as the head of research uh, and strategies at J.P. Morgan, you know, I mean, if, if if you need to make conversation over lunch or dinner, right, you talk about the currency, right? Because I mean, hey, who knows? For all intents and purposes, you know, uh, it's it's very very difficult to find anybody who's got a consistent track record, you know, of getting currency rights. And there's just so many forces, um, you know, that are at play here. The point is that you know you invest in Japanese companies because there is a 
value proposition. Um, you know, there is a high dividend yield. Uh, corporate governance has changed. So the leadership, and this is shown, you know, during the corona crisis, you know, corporate profits plunged by 50%, but dividends got increased by about 8%. I mean, hello, that is a phenomenal story, um, you know, and phenomenal proof that indeed corporate governance, capital stewardship here in Japan has changed. So these are very investable companies. They have proper businesses, um, you know, and, you know, the, the, that combination, that's what you, what you want to be investing in. Speculating on the currency, you know, is a completely different ballgame, but you don't have to. And if you don't have to, if you hedge it out in the current environment, if you hedge out the Japanese uh, uh, the, your Japanese equity exposure, you actually get paid, you know, almost 300 basis points. I mean, who wouldn't do that trade? Why would you leave 300 basis points on the table just because you think, you know, you know what the currency market is going to do? Because trust me, the currency market, nobody gets the currency market rights all the time. I, I generally agree at sort of this unexpected source of risk. Um, and not predictable return. And what's fascinating is the yen has been this historically risk-off currency. So, you know, in a way, you've had to have the yen go down for the stocks to go up, uh, which is which is interesting. But, uh, you know, the, the question I guess some people would say is, well, the yen's a quote-unquote diversifier, but then you're sort of diversifying your gains, you know, in the equities because generally Japan tends to trade well when the yen's going down. No, but this is the whole point. And this is, again, you know, just look at the numbers. If you stop talking, look at the numbers. It's not your fault. It's not my fault. Just around 60% of the earnings of listed companies is generated from their global business, either through exports or through offshore production. So as a result of that, you know, you know, yes, you look at the Japanese market, it is the most globally cyclically sensitive market. It goes up and down with the global business cycle. And, you know, you're exactly right. Typically, right, um, you know, when the, uh, uh, you know, when the global business cycle is strong, you know, you actually find that the yen tends to be a weaker currency. And it's interesting. I just, you know, previously we, we said, oh, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be really speculating on, on the yen. Um, you know, but if you ask me, you know, what is the currency a, a forecast? My personal opinion is that, you know, if the global business cycle does indeed accelerate, um, you know, uh, you will see an increase in global commodity prices across the board. And that on its own will raise global demand for dollars. And I know that 90% of all the currency strategists are trying to predict the weaker dollar, um, you know, but I think this is a good time to be contrarian for all intents and purposes, dollar yen at 115 or even 120 in a year's time is a perfectly reasonable forecast. This is a, a very interesting conversation. We're going to continue with Jesper Cole, Senior Advisor of Wisdom Tree in Japan. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You're listening to Behind the Markets. Jesper, we talked a bit about, uh, we were talking about the global business of Japan. Um, maybe talk a little bit about uh, how, some of the relationships with China uh, and, and how important China is. You know, what, what you see, you know, you're close to the businesses in Japan. What are they seeing coming out of China, given that's such an important story for the global economy today? No, and this is this is very very important. I mean, people forget, uh, you know, how much the uh, Japanese corporate sector has actually restructured, um, you know, its global, um, you know, its global map. I mean, let's just look at the numbers. Um, you know, ten years ago, uh, just about fifty percent uh, of the overseas profits you know, came from the United States of America, right? So Japan and the United States, there was no question that America was the, by far the most important market, uh, you know, for Japanese corporations. Over the last decade, this has changed. The U.S. has come down from about 50%, is now at around 23% of all profits. And the People's Republic of China has come up from about 8% 10 years ago to now about 20% of all corporate profits. Um, you know, so the reality of Chinese, of the Chinese growth story, um, you know, is very real. And remember, the, the reality of the Chinese growth story is an extremely broad-based one. You know, it's anything from, uh, you know, sort of small materials, from parts, all the way down to, you know, high-spec electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, the Japanese companies are extremely well-placed. And 72% uh, 
um, you know, of all the, so China is Japan's largest trade partner, both on the export side and on the import side. And you're seeing this right now, that this global diversification away from the United States towards the People's Republic of China is actually working extremely well for the Japanese, because whether you like it or not, you know, China is having a V-shaped economic recovery. Um, you're seeing car sales, you know, uh, a growing double-digit 20 25%. Um, you know, you're seeing um, machinery orders, machine tool orders from the People's Republic of China rising 30 35% here, you know, for Japanese companies. You know, that recovery is very, very real and is one of the reasons for why I do expect that, um, you know, uh, uh, the next next earnings season in Japan is going to give you a slate of positive surprises, um, you know, precisely because the nexus uh, between Japan and the People's Republic of China has grown so strong. It's great diversification now paying off as the world is having this desynchronized uh, recovery where China is taking the lead. Yeah, it's sort of interesting as the U.S. seems to be ratcheting up tensions with China. I mean, how... How do you think Japan's overall relations with China are, and, and where is Japan? Uh, you, you talk a little bit about how the uh, the trading companies may be this power broker, also in sort of the, the in the move towards Asia, and how that's all going to interplay. But 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 Jeremy, this is where it gets really interesting, you know. And I don't want to tread on anybody's toes here in terms of their political ideology, and you know, do we or do we not need to contain China more aggressively, right? But the reality is that you know. As the United States, you know, becomes more forceful in uh, for political reasons, um, you know, forcing American companies to source outside of the People's Republic of China for fear of technology transfer, etc. And, you know, who's going to be the winner? That's the Japanese company. I mean, you know, if an American company can no longer order from a Chinese robotics company or from a Chinese chip supplier, where are they going to go to? They're going to go to a Japanese one. Um, and, you know, so the irony is that actually the secret winner of the growing U.S. US China technology tensions, the secret winner um, is actually going to be Japan. And, of course, to some extent, South Korea as well, because it's Japan and South Korea that actually make that stuff. I mean, European companies, basically, when you look at the high tech level, I mean, name a European high tech company. And don't it's think. hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard. You know. So from that perspective, again, you want to be careful. I mean, you know, you certainly there are good reasons for you know why the United States and why perhaps global policy of you know sourcing from the People's Republic of China uh, in the high technology space. You know why that should be coming under greater scrutiny, right? I don't want to go into that argument, but the hard reality of business means that as, as U.S.-China tensions rise, particularly in the area of technology. Japan wins. Now, one of the things as you, as you go, so we've gone from global to I want to bring it a little bit more local. Uh, you know, I, 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 one of the, the pushbacks you've heard all the time, and I actually just heard it at, right after the Buffett News, there's some people on Twitter talking about, uh, you know, what is the case to be in Japan? And, you know, there was a few narratives against being in Japan. One is one of your favorites, um, you know, the the, the population sort of lack of immigration uh, and demographics as being a, a bear on the Japanese economy, less people, not letting enough people in. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about the the economic impact there, how you're how you viewing our, our, and, and any of the immigration stats there? I mean, this this is this is, you know, one of my favorite topics because, you know, it's, it's the easiest pushback. Oh, my God, in 310 years, only 11 Japanese are going to be left. Right. So why should you invest in this country? I mean, come on, you know, you're not investing in population. You're investing in purchasing power. Um, you know, you're not investing in a national economy. You're investing in individual companies. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the innovation potential of Japan, you know, there's no correlation. Um, you know, with, uh, you know, with the absolute amount of, uh, you know, of the population. I mean, look at, uh, look at Germany, uh, you know, look at Switzerland, you know, very innovative countries, um, you know, despite the fact that they don't have massively growing uh, populations. Now, you know, what is interesting is that, again, um, you know, if you look at the facts, you know, just now with the corona uh, recession, you know, there is about 2.5 million people in Japan that have been furloughed 
out of a labor force of around 65 million, 2.5 million have been furloughed, um, you know, and about 1.5 million people have been made unemployed. So what does that mean? That actually means that all of a sudden my labor constraint, right, has gone away because I've got maybe around 3 million people uh, on a labor, on a workforce of 65 million people. I've got 3 million people, you know, who are ready to be employed. And that's actually a huge, uh, a, a huge benefit. And you're seeing it, by the way. For example, remember there was this huge labor shortage of uh, truck drivers, which is obviously a big part with the logistics economy, with all the Amazon shipping back and forth, etc. Um, you know, so truck drivers were an enormously short supply, and wages of truck drivers actually rose by 20, 25 percent. Now, actually, wages for truck drivers, you know, um, you know, are stable um, and, you know, the industry is actually thriving and capable of reorganizing itself because the supply of labor has actually now increased, you know, for the cyclical reason. So I think actually over the next, you know, uh, uh, 15 to 18 months, you know, the, the, the labor constraint is really not an issue. Quite the opposite. I think it's actually come up, become a positive. And have they actually been, you know, when we've talked about this in the past, you've talked about how immigration is sort of quietly happens, but they just don't talk about it. Is that is that something <laughs> yeah, look, you still I mean, see this, is accurate? No, no, no. Look, I mean, absolutely. And, and again, it's, it's not your fault. It's not my fault. I mean, you know, during Prime Minister Abe's tenure over the last eight years, the number of foreigners, um, you know, working in Japan, you know, has doubled. Now, you know, it's still, you know, uh, barely at uh, just below 3% you know of the workforce if you adjust it for the 16 to for, for the 16 to 65 year old so actually the the the, the you know the labor force right um, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, you, you, you've now got about, you know, about uh, 5%, uh, you know, being, uh, being non-Japanese up from 2.5%, you know, a decade ago. So, you know, it is happening. It is happening on Japanese terms. It's, it's very pragmatic. Uh, you know, it's not, an, it's not an open country in the sense of that Japan doesn't have open borders. But uh, people with qualifications, you know, people, you know, who do have a job, people, who, you know, who do speak Japanese, you know, they're being let in. And it's a great place to be. And I think you'll find that, um, you know, that the, 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 the labor constraint, it's, it's, it's a great pushback. It's kind of like, you know, imagine if, you, if, you're, if, you're, if you're Japanese, you know, you're pushing, oh, I will never invest in America, uh, you know, because your infrastructure sucks. Um, I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, that's a true statement. Therefore, America can't grow. Therefore, America can generate uh, high investment returns is not true. So America has a shortage of public capital. Japan has an abundance of capital. You know, Japan does have a labor constraint in the long run. You know, but that therefore, you know, Japanese companies can't generate investment returns, can't be innovative, you know, absolutely makes no sense. Uh, we're talking with Jesper Cole, senior advisor to Wisdom Tree in Japan, about uh, the prime minister shift as well as the Buffett purchase of Japanese stocks and really just in the general macro case for investing in Japan. Uh, you know, Jesper, some of the things uh, we've hit on a lot of the big issues that people are talking about. Um, you know, I think in terms of the investment side, you know, we just talked a little bit about the economy, the corporate governance you touched on sort of the cash-rich nature and companies doing more dividends and buybacks. You want to talk about the impetus, you know, when the focus on shareholder returns started shifting, how it's, how you think the prog progress is going on focusing on corporate governance and just other things that, that's making Japan a more shareholder-friendly place to be. No, and, and Jeremy, that's the key point, you know, because there's, there's no question that, you know, let's say up to, you know, five, six years ago, Japan was an insider's market and, you know, corporate executives had difficulties, you know, talking about return on equity, weighted cost of capital, or even, you know, about share buybacks or dividend payouts. That has changed not because of global activists coming in, but it has changed because the domestic public pension fund, the GPIF, has changed the story. You know, they've introduced a capital stewardship code, they've introduced the corporate governance code, and now the pressure on Japanese corporations, 
to raise their payout ratios is not coming from foreign activists. It's coming from domestic Japanese pension managers led by the GPIF, by the public pension scheme, which, as you know, is the largest pension fund in, 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 the, uh, in the world. So, you know, it's an, it's an internal force. And that's why I believe, you know, uh, that it does have legs because it's not something that you do to appease some foreigner. It is something that is recognized, you know, as an essential part, um, you know, to maintain the stability and a future prosperity of Japan. Because obviously, you know, uh, the returns, the capital returns from the pension system are going to be absolutely key to ensure, you know, that the uh, uh, that the payouts can be met and that the contributions don't have to be increased any further. So it's it's very very interesting. The corporate governance thing, uh, you know, the, the the corporate governance change here in Japan, you know, is is an, is an internal force and therefore uh, it does have legs. Yeah, I mean, when we when we see the cash levels, you know, they were able to maintain despite some of the the uncertainty, maintain or increase dividends, you know, even though profits generally, you know, somewhat took a hit this year. Uh, and, and and is that a culture change? You think is just here? They're going to continue to try to, you know, Japan still, even after they've been raising it, still has a relatively low dividend payout ratio compared to some of the rest of the world. Is that uh, something you think keeps rising? Yeah, no, absolutely, and it's 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 actually wonderful. I mean, look. I mean, let, let, let me be very clear. I mean, you know, the cash hoarding in Japan, you know, has got, uh, you know, a degree of proportions that is unimaginable. I mean, you know, the listed companies alone have cash equivalents, um, cash and short-term securities equivalent to 130% of GDP. Um, you know, it basically went up by 100% of GDP over the last decade. I mean, that's that's you know, an incredible waste of assets. You've got one times GDP on the balance sheet earning nothing, right? Um, so sometimes when I talk to Japanese politicians about this, you know, they start frothing at the mouth and say, oh, let's tax those cash balances, you know, and double GDP, right? But that's, of course, not going to be happening, you know, but now with the pressure from the uh, government pension fund, with the change in corporate governance and uh, the stewardship code coming in, the CFOs and CEOs of Japanese corporations have recognized that, hey, Raising the dividends actually doesn't hurt anybody. You know, it's, 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 it's one thing, you know, if you are asking as an investor, if you're asking a company to sell a business, you know, to restructure its business, that hurts. You have to make some hard decisions. You may have to fire people. You've got to close down a division. You know, Japanese are reluctant to do that. But recognizing that, hey, if I raise the dividend, right, um, everybody's happy. I hurt nobody. That's starting to actually, you know, that's a, that's a profound change in the corporate culture that is actually starting to happening that actually, you know, uh, you know, cutting the dividend or raising the, sorry, raising the dividend, you know, is not taking away from someone, but is actually, uh, you know, benefiting all stakeholders in the company. Are, are there any sectors in Japan you're particularly excited about in terms of where you say opportunities are or things that people haven't covered them. I mean, obviously, the trading companies are getting a lot of focus. But if you said uh, you know, there's areas that are that that Mr. Buffett should look next, or any other any other type of investor should think about from from Japan. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I, I think that the entire analog sector, so the machinery, machine tool, capital goods sector, um, you know, extremely attractive valuations. And obviously, these are cyclical plays. Um, and if you agree with me for 30 seconds that the economic re recovery in the People's Republic of China is going to feed an economic recovery in Asia Pacific, you know, that alone, um, you know, is going to allow for the Japanese machinery, machine tool, capital goods sector, um, you know, to actually bring um, to bring very, very good performance here into the system. Interesting. Um, yeah, the cyclical growth, Japan has been, you know, at the center of that cyclical growth story. So that, that's an interesting timing for 2021 on the back of sort of global stimulus in Japan in, in general. Um, the um, In terms of the other areas uh, of focus, we, we talked about small caps before with you and, and that tied into the demographic story of the, you know, the the lack of of the population growth actually leading to better wages and, and being bullish for the small cap 
type of local companies in addition to the global companies. Is that something in part of your thesis too, that Japan local is still a good place to be? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you know, for, for global investors, you know, the, the, the first decision is always like, you know, where, where is the, the, the global business cycle? You know, if you believe that the global business cycle is close to a bottom and the recovery goes on, that's a great timing, uh, you know, to look at the, at the Japanese market, at the large cap market. Um, you know, personally, you know, a structural favorite, um, you know, remains the Japanese small cap universe. Um, and here, you know, the amount of entrepreneurship, um, you know, that is happening is actually quite spectacular. I mean, Japan has had a record number of IPOs this year. And uh, unlike in the US, you know, uh, all of the IPOs actually trade at, uh, you know, a, at least 30 to 50 percent premium uh, to the IPO price. The second part is that for the domestic small and medium sized companies, the fact that there is industrial consolidation, um, you know, is uh, is a great thing. You're seeing uh, M&A boom, mergers and acquisitions boom here in the Japanese economy with mid-sized companies you know, um, actually uh, consolidating. Um, and, uh, you know, that should be very good news in terms of, uh, you know, actually giving these companies, these consolidated entities, um, you know, some form of uh, price power or greater price power than they had before. So I, I like very, very much as a, uh, you know, as a, as a structural play, um, you know, over the next three to five years, I think Japanese small caps are absolutely the place that you want to be. Interesting. Uh, and maybe one final comment uh, on, you know, in terms of where Japan is really well known for, you know, you go just to the top largest uh, holdings in most Japan strategy, it tends to be some of the car companies. Uh, any, you know, I, I think one of the hottest stocks everybody's watching in the U.S. this year is Tesla. Any commentary on Japan's take on the electrical vehicle market, how they look at any, I'm sure you guys talk a little bit about Tesla in Japan. I know it's it's not you know, uh, it's, as a global company, it's not your main focus, but any any quick t takes on the car companies and Tesla in, in particular? Uh, it's very interesting. I think that actually, you know, Tesla, you know, needs to watch out, um, you know, because uh, Toyota Motor Corporation, um, you know, is now razor focused, right, um, you know, on uh, getting more aggressive in both the EV as well as the hydrogen uh, uh, car market. And you want to be very careful because Toyota, it's not Elon Musk's fault, but I mean, if Elon Musk makes 400,000 cars, I mean, remember, Toyota makes 10 million cars every year. And these people are now razor focused, right, on, um, you know, basically disrupting the disruptor uh, by just sheer volume pressure. So it's going to be very, very interesting. The other thing is, and this is, this is a, 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 a personal uh, favorite of mine, um, I think it's a good time to look at Nissan Motors. Um, I mean, Nissan was obviously, you know, super in the news with the Carlos Ghosn, uh, you know, uh, that was going on. But the interesting thing is that there is now new management, there's a new board, and they've announced, you know, a couple of new cars. And one of these cars in particular is going to be a Tesla killer. Um, so it's going to be very, very interesting. I think uh, gone through a lot of hardship. Um, you know, I think that Nissan is actually an individual company that is worthwhile watching now. Very good. This is a great, uh, I'll have to be watching for that Tesla killer. That'll be uh, fascinating to watch. Jesper Cole, Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree Japan. Thank you always so much for joining us here on Behind the Markets. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about Wisdom Tree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.